The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. I'm going to invite Natalie to come and give us our Bible reading for today. Good morning, church. Today we're reading from Luke chapter 10, verse 25. So if you want to grab your Bibles, it'll probably be on the screen too. There it is. The parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when when he saw the man, he passed on by the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil on and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thank you, Nat. There was a woman who went to her psychologist in great frustration, and he said, that's it. I'm done with my husband. I've had enough. I want a divorce. But she said, but I want more than for him to leave me. I want him to suffer. I want to punish him. I want to take revenge for all the hurt and the pain that he's caused me over the years. I want to get even. So the psychologist thought for a moment and he said, I've got a brilliant idea. He said, why don't you go home and for the next couple of months, act like you really love him. Be generous, be kind, you know, encourage him, show appreciation for everything he does, speak kind words, acknowledge, you know, how great he looks and and just really go over the top in being kind and loving towards him. And then just when he's so convinced of your undying love and your undying devotion, then break the news to him and say, that's it, I'm done, I'm getting a divorce. That will really hurt him. And she's like, yeah, that's a great idea. What a brilliant strategy. She said, I I can't wait. And she rushed home. And for the next two months, that's what she did. She proceeded to to love her husband and and care for him and was generous and kind and helpful and encouraging and all of those wonderful things. And the psychologist hadn't heard back from her in two months. And so he rang her and said, "Um, are we still going through with the divorce? She's like, divorce? Why would I do that? I've discovered how much I love my husband. (laughs) Acts of kindness are powerful. 
powerful. They, they, they have the power to, to change people. They have the power to, to restore relationships. They have the power to bring healing, to end hostility, to bring peace into trouble and turmoil. If nothing else, acts of kindness and generosity have the power to change you and the power to change me. And so this morning, as we continue our series that we began last week, looking at kingdom generosity, looking at how we can radiate Jesus through our generosity, our acts of kindness, uh, we come to this passage, a famous passage that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. And this is a familiar story to many. And, and the interesting thing is this whole idea of doing good, of, of doing acts of kindness, is not unique or not an, the exclusive claim of Christians. Just about every world religion has some sense of an, an obligation to, to help humanity. Uh, you know, I have relatives that are Hindus. I know people who are Buddhists and, and from all different faiths. Muslims are the same. They, they have this core value of being helpful, of being good, of being generous to others and doing acts of kindness. So th- that kind of begs the question, well, what is Christianity's unique claim? What is Christianity's distinctive when it comes to doing acts of kindness? Is there anything different or are we the same as every other world religion? Well, I believe this passage gives us some really significant things that are different about the Christian experience of charity. And so that's what I want to look at and explore this morning. And I want to do that by exploring the different questions that come up in this passage. Because they are really the, the, the way Luke drives this narrative forward. He uses these questions to kind of keep moving the story to its conclusion um, that Jesus brings it to. And so there's three main questions that I want to look at. The first one we, we encounter is on the words of this expert on the law that kind of begins this journey. It says this, an expert in the law stood up and he, and he wanted to test Jesus. And that's not necessarily a negative or a bad thing. It's just he's wanting to see where Jesus was at. And he asks this question, teacher. And we notice that there's respect here because he, he stands up and he acknowledges Jesus to be a teacher. And so it's not necessarily hostile. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's an interesting question, but what Jesus says in response is even more interesting because Jesus asks him about the law. Now, as Christians who understand the New Testament, we should be surprised by that. You'd think that Jesus would say something like, well, believe in me and you will have eternal life. Or like he said in John 11 to, to Mary and Martha as they, grie- as they were grieving, I am the resurrection and the life. But he takes this man who's an expert in the law to the law. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's the, the Jewish Shema. That's the, the, the central truth of Judaism. And, and that's the, the core teaching and that everything else kind of hangs around it. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the expected answer from an expert of the law. And again, what Jesus says in response is what's staggering. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. And then right at the end of the, of the parable and when Jesus comments on the parable and again interrogates and or asks the, the expert to respond, he, he finishes by, says, uh, by saying, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Do. 
as New Testament Christians, that should make us a little bit uncomfortable with the emphasis of doing. Doing. Is Jesus advocating a work salvation? Is Jesus advocating that there is another way of salvation, another way to have eternal life? And that is in doing the law, in keeping the law, in being faithful to the law. Is that what Jesus is on about? That somehow good works and charity and kindness will earn you merit with God? Well, that's certainly how a lot of world religions understand good works. You, you do good things and you get karma, good karma. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And we see that in the book of Acts when you know, a viper attacks the apostle Paul. And the immediate assumption is, oh, he must be a bad person because bad things only happen to bad people. And we see that in our culture. We see that all around us. And sometimes we see that even among Christians. There was a survey done among 7,000 Protestant young people in America. Now, again, I know American Christianity is a little bit different. It's a little bit out there because a lot of, for some people, it's more a cultural thing than a genuine converted experience of faith in Jesus. But even among those who claimed to be converted, born again, like we said last week, genuine followers of Jesus, there was an overwhelming majority of people that said that their assurance that they're going to go to heaven was based on their good works. Their good works. So is that what Jesus is saying here? That if we do good deeds, if we're kind, if we're generous, then we can have eternal life. I don't think that's the point Jesus is trying to make here. In fact, in light of what the New Testament says in passages like Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, it's clear that there is no way Jesus would be saying that your good works will have any merit before God. Because we're never going to be saved no matter how much good works we do. And so this question relates to our motivation. What is our motivation for doing good? It, it's not so that we can get salvation. And as Christians, we need to guard against any temptation of that. May we never think that if I just do good deeds, if I'm generous, if I'm kind, that somehow that's going to save me. Because the Bible categorically will say no. No. So then what is our motivation? What is Jesus saying here? He, he's saying to this expert in the law who knew the law back to front, he says it's, it's not enough just to know the law. It's not enough to profess faith in God. It's not enough to even say I love God with all my heart and mind and soul and strength. You have to do the word of God. You have to obey. There's got to be a, a, a joining of your declaration and your faith, your profession and your action. You, you can't have a profession without action, which is what James says in chapter 2. Your faith without deeds is, is dead. It, it matters nothing. Just as much as faith, dead uh, deeds without faith means nothing either. There was a story told about a Scotsman who had a little rowboat business, and he would ferry people around in, in the village that he, he uh, lived in. And one day this tourist came and wanted to be taken to this other destination, and he got in this little rowboat, and the Scotsman was kind of rowing him. And as, as they went, the, the, the tourist noticed on both O's were two words. One had faith written on it, and one had um, works engraved in it. And so the guy asked the Scots, you know, the rowboat man, well, what's, what's with the faith and the works? He said, let me show you. And so he put down the works oar, and he began to just row with the faith one. And the boat just went round and round and round. And then he kind of put the fate one in the boat and he started rowing with the works one. Just round and just went the other way, round and round and round. And then he picked up both of them and he started rowing and they began to move forward. And he said, that's the point. He said, if you just rely on faith, 
you just go in circles. If you just rely on your works, you go in circles. You need both. You need both faith and works. Now, we kind of get that. We understand that. But sometimes any talk of obedience gets Christians really weird. We kind of start getting jittery and go, who is that legalism? Am I smelling legalistic spirits in this church? No, no, I want to suggest to you that calling people to live a life consistently with the teaching of God's word is not legalism. There's another word for it. It's called discipleship. It's discipleship. Saying to people, look, your good works are not going to save you. If you say your good works is how you are saved, that's legalism. But that's not what the Bible teaches. But everywhere the Bible expects God's people to act in certain ways, act consistent with their profession that they are God's people. And that's what this, this question reveals, that Jesus is saying to this expert in the law, it's not enough for you to know the law. It's not enough for you to claim that you have religious training and experience and you can recite to me off the top of your head what the Shema is and what the next great, none of that matters. Go and do it. Go and live it. Go and embody it. Prove the genuineness and the sincerity of your profession by your action. That is our motivation. As Christians, we, we don't buy into the, the ideas of the world religions and our culture that says, you know what? You do good because it's good for you. You, good, you do good because it earns you credit. You do good because somehow God will give you a, a free pass because your good works outweigh your bad ones. No, we don't buy into that. But that doesn't mean we're off the hook and go, well, I'm saved by grace, not by works, so I don't have to do any works. I can just enjoy God's goodness and grace. No, that's going around in circles too. It's saying, God, because I love you, because your love has gripped my heart, because I do and I want to serve you and honor you, I will obey you out of love. That is our motivation. And so as the story continues, the second question comes up, and, and this religious leader, he wants to justify himself, Luke tells us in verse 29. He wanted to kind of say, okay, well, I get that. All right, all right, I, I get that I'm supposed to love God with my whole heart and love my neighbor, and I, I get that I'm supposed to go and do it, but, but who's my neighbor? Who, who's my neighbor? Let's just clarify what we're talking about. He wanted to justify th the limits of who a neighbor is. This question relates to the extent of our responsibility. What, what is the, the parameters? Where are the boundaries of my responsibility? And, and in this time, in the Jewish mind, my neighbor was a fellow Jew. Every other Jew is my neighbor. But beyond that, well, I, I don't know. I don't care. Now, again, we all know how easy it is to love your own kind. When we have a fundraiser for the Philippines, guess who turns up? The Africans. No. No, it's the Filipinos. When we do a Sri Lankan fundraiser, guess who's there? Bells on with their curries. It's relatively easy. Uh, Micah tells us, my son Micah, he works at Platypus Shoes in DFO. And he often tells us stories how when, you know, people come into his store, you know, who are Indian or Sri Lankan, they look at him and they go straight to him. And they go, can you, can you fix us up? Can you give us a good deal? Because, you know, we're, we're your people. You know, will you look after us? And, and we know. We, we, we all do that. You know, if you go to the same school. In America, this is huge about what fraternity you were part of. You scratch each other's back. It's easy to look after your own kind. 
But Jesus is saying something profound here. When he begins the parable, notice what he says in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem. He's not a Jew. He's not a Samaritan. He's a man. He's a man. He's someone created in the image of God. He's just a regular person. He's just every human being who's in need. That's what's so profound about it. Jesus is saying to him, there is no limit to generosity. There is no limit to acts of kindness. There is no limit to your circle of responsibility. It extends well beyond your own kind. It's meant to take you beyond your comfort zone to every single human being in need. In need. Now, I don't know about you, but that's scary. That's huge. That, that responsibility seems massive. How do we do that? We, we live in a world where there is so much need, where there is so much suffering, there's so much heartache and so much pain. How can we possibly care for every single person in every single situation and every single need? I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here either. He's talking about the man on the street that you're on. He's talking about the people that you know or you come to know about. When there's a need. You see, sometimes in the, in the face of overwhelming need, we shirk our responsibility and go, well, what, what possible good can I do? What possible difference can I make? I don't know if you've seen that little video clip where the girl is on the beach with the starfish. You probably heard that starfish story. And you know, these, on this particular day, thousands of starfish or sea stars, as they call, I think, washed up on the beach. And this little girl is walking down the beach, picking them up and throwing them back into the ocean because they would die if she didn't. And this jogger comes along and he's jogging on the beach and he stands there and he watches this girl throwing these stars back. And he looks down the beach and he sees thousands of them. And he says to the little girl, do you really think you're going to make a difference? Just look. Do you really think you're going to make a difference? And she just casually picks up another one, throws it back in the water, and she said, I made a difference to that one. I made a difference to that one. Sometimes it's about meeting the needs you know about when it's right there. You know, it's great. I had a a story I was going to tell you about the pub race, and I forgot that they were leaving today. Cool story. They came with me to Africa when we traveled last year. And again, we were doing a whole bunch of ministry and these guys were going to the schools and, and, you know, talking to kids and praying with kids and paying their school fees and stuff, which was cool. And while they were there, one of the things they noticed was that so many kids didn't have any footwear, didn't have any shoes, didn't have thongs, they had nothing, walking around bare feet. And some of these kids had blisters and, you know, sores on their feet. And, and Lisa and Cesar just, they, they, they couldn't not do something about that. So on one of those days, they said, we've got to go to the markets. We went to the markets, and we walked up and down the markets, you know, like for hours, looking for thongs, you know, looking for shoes that were big enough to, to buy for these kids. And, you know, I think we, we, we bought people out of the shoes that they had. And some of these guys were every pair that we, we know were the right size we, we bought. And then for the rest of that week, when they went to schools, they would give kids shoes. Now, did they make a difference to the poverty of Kenya? Probably not. Did they put shoes on every kid's feet that needed a pair? Probably not. Definitely not. But did they make a difference to some kids' lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand, that every human being who has a need is our neighbor. 
is the one that we're supposed to care for and reach out to. But we might never have the opportunity to meet every single need. And we might not have the resources to even do that. But when we know, we are to act. When we know, we are to do something. When we know and when we can make a difference, we are to make a difference. Um, Brooke Fraser wrote a song a few years back called Albertine, which was all about this experience. And she was talking about this experience she had in Rwanda and how she met kids that were affected by the war. And she was so moved by that that she wrote this song saying that now that I know, I'm responsible and I'm going to do something. And the chorus says this, now that I have seen, I am responsible. Faith without deeds is dead. Now that I have held you in my own arms, I cannot let go. I cannot let go. And so I want to encourage us as a church that when we know, let's act. We might not be able to end world poverty or make a difference in Parramatta's poverty, but when we have people come to food care, we can help. We can do something. When we hear, heard about in the Philippines that some people that you know, were connected to the churches, they lost their homes in that hurricane, we did something. Let's be a church that says, yeah, we can't change every need and every situation, but when we find a neighbor on our road, another human being who might not be our kind or our sort of people or whatever it might be, let's do something. But that's not the unique thing about Jesus. That's not the unique thing about Christian. The unique thing about Christianity is what Jesus says about loving our enemies. In Luke chapter 6, this is what Jesus said. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But here's the unique distinction for Christ followers. But, but you love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Just as your Father is merciful. That is the extent. That is what makes Christian charity and giving unique. Loving your enemies, being generous and kind to those who can't repay, who who are not your kind, who are well beyond your circle of comfort and acceptance. Let me paint this a little bit more concretely for us. Imagine Christians in, in London, Christian people in London who know of or have experienced firsthand the tragedy of being affected by the terrorist attacks. Imagine them now meeting the practical needs of the families of those, of those terrorists. That's what Jesus wants us to embrace. Where the church, where Christian people, where those who might have been directly affected, but because they're Christians, will extend grace and kindness and generosity to their enemies. Now, the moment I say that, I put myself in that situation and go, God, could I even do that? But again, I want to be a church where we engaged, engage faithfully with the Bible and what Jesus teaches, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, where we wrestle with that and go, how do I live this? Because following Jesus is not easy. But it's something we're called to do. 
how far does our responsibility extend? Well, Jesus says there is no limit. It even includes your enemy. And that's unique. The last question. So Jesus tells this parable, and I, I want you to notice that this man, he gets mugged, he gets kind of beaten up, and then the priest comes, and, and he, they go, he goes down, he sees this man, he crosses over to the other side and keeps going. And then the Levite, he comes along, he sees, he crosses, and he keeps going. But the Samaritan, the Samaritan comes, and he responds differently. And at the end, Jesus asks this question of this expert. Which of these people was a neighbor? Notice what Jesus does there. He flips the question. The expert says to him, who is my neighbor? What does Jesus say? Now, that's the wrong question to ask. That's the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is, who was a neighbor? Who was being a neighbor? And the expert says, well, of course, the, the man, and he can't even say Samaritan because that's like a dirty word for a Jew. He says, the man who showed mercy. See, this third question, when Jesus says, which of these three was the neighbor, gets to the heart of this whole parable. It gets to the identity issue. Who is really the person of God? Who is really the, the people of God? I know that's not proper grammar. I'm sorry about that. Because the expect, expectation in this parable is that it would be the priest. Because both the priest and the Levite, the way Jesus portrays them, they are going down on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that means they've, if they're priests and Levites and they're traveling alone, there's a good likelihood that they've been to Jerusalem to fulfill their priestly roster. They've been on the roster in, in the Jerusalem temple to do their worship. They've been leading the worship, leading the services, contributing to the worship expression of that time. And now they're going home after they've been at church. They've done their roster duty and they're going home. Now the expectation as this story was being told by the hearers was that, oh, of course the priest would help. Of course the Levite would help because they're the devout. They're the holy. They're the religious. They're the faithful. They're the obedient. They're the people of God. They're the people that we're all aspiring to be like. And these guys, they've just come from the temple. They've been with God. They've been worshiping. They've been serving. They're on the road. They see a guy who's got a problem. They go, of course they're going to meet the need. But they don't. They don't. In fact, they cross over and they keep going. See, sometimes obedience alone is not enough of a motivation. Obedience alone will not get us to do things. You know why? Because acting in generosity, acting in kindness... It's risky. Think about that. This Samaritan, Samaritan guy, he was on the same road where this robber got beaten up. This other guy got beaten up by robbers. He was on the same road. And only he, this, this guy is presented as a merchant. Like he's got wine. He's got oil. He's got a donkey. He's probably going to Jerusalem or somewhere to sell his stuff. He would have been a prime target for robbers. This guy is in risk. Notice the inconvenience of extending mercy. He has to detour. He has to stop what he's doing. He's got to be inconvenienced. He puts this guy on his donkey. He uses his stuff. He goes to the inn. He has to set it all up. It's inconvenient. It's costly. This guy's using his own stuff. He's using his own money to pay for this guy. And he's promising the innkeeper, when I come back, I'll fix you up for any debt. See, doing this, being a neighbor is risky. Being a neighbor is expensive. Being a neighbor is inconvenient. And so we need something more than obedience. What is it? 
We need mercy. That is the central point in this parable. That is the the barb, the twist in this parable. Because it's at that point that the story shifts. Because these two men, they come, they see, and they cross over. The Samaritan does exactly the same thing. He comes, he sees, and then the next thing is different. He took pity. He took pity. And instead of crossing over, he crosses to the man, and he helps him. There was a story told about Vladimir Nabokov, I think his name is, a novelist. He wrote Lolita. Some of you might know that book. And uh, he was holidaying with a friend in Utah in the States. And uh, Nabokov was an avid collector of butterflies and moths. And so on this particular day, you know, he came back uh, after being out all day looking for butterflies and moths. And he was telling his friend this story that on, on this one particular time, he was chasing this rare butterfly. And while he was chasing it, he, he heard from a gully just as uh, that he was running past, walking past, these really moanful groans coming from down in the, in the gully. And so his friend says, well, did you, did you stop? Did you go and have a look to, to, to see what was going on? He said, no, I didn't want to lose the butterfly. The next day, they found that there was an old prospector who had died down in that gully. And what they did was, in, in memory of Nabokov, they named that gully Dead Man's Gulch. It's still there today. The point is, sometimes we get so preoccupied chasing our butterflies while people around us are dying. And the only thing that will shift that is if we get a heart of mercy. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 6, and we read that scripture, we're to be merciful because our heavenly Father is merciful. It's as we discover God's heart for us, as we discover that God is merciful and he acts in mercy towards us in Jesus, that that is his expression of compassion and love that drives Jesus to the cross as it went and took Jesus to the cross himself. It is as he saw us in desperate need and had compassion and mercy that he endured the cross. And it's as we embrace that heart of God that we'll be stirred to action. And that's what kind of holds this whole parable together. It's as we discover that God is wanting to shift us and shape us and soften our heart that we will be able to act in compassion and mercy. I don't want us to be a church that disconnects our love of God with our being a neighbor. And sometimes it's so easy to come to church and have wonderful spiritual encounters and go home unchanged on the inside. I don't want to be a church like that. I want, I want to be a church where you come and we worship together and we hear God's word and we're moved and we're changed on the inside. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds and our hearts and we're different when we leave and we're, we're different because we grab something of the heart of God. We're transformed by his grace and his love to be more like Jesus, to be more sacrificial as Phil shared this morning. See, there's another story I want to tell you about a trapeze artist in a circus. And he was talking to a friend and, and you know, they were talking about the net that often hangs at the bottom when there's trapeze artists working. And the, 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 the circus guy was telling his friend, we're so thankful for the net. The net actually keeps us safe. The net keeps us from falling. He said, because if we didn't have the net, we would be nervous and we'd probably you know, make mistakes and we, we'd be so stressed about falling that we wouldn't be actually able to focus on what we're doing. And he said, but the other thing the net does is it allows us to take risks. He said, if the net wasn't there, I would do the safest thing. 
I do the easiest thing, the most comfortable thing. But because I know the net is there, it pushes me to go beyond my comfort zone. It pushes me to take risks. It pushes me to try things I've never tried before because I know that the net will catch me. That's what Jesus is getting at. That when you come to a place where you're, when you're so secure in your, God's love for you, when you're so rested in the gospel, when you've been so affected and changed, and you know that that net's there, you know that God's got you, you know that he'll provide your needs, you'll know, and you know in your heart that your father knows, and he's got you, then you can extend yourself. You can step out. You can take risks. You can be a neighbor because you know that the father's got you. That's where this journey must begin, in our hearts. So, look, I've been at PCC long enough to know that this is our heart. We, we get this as a church. We're, we're so generous. We're, we're so practical in our help. Whenever somebody has a baby or they're sick, people cook meals. When people hear about a need that somebody needs a car, somebody donates a car and says, yeah, have mine, I don't need this. We, we get this. And so I'm not preaching this message to say to you, come on, church, let's, let's get on board with this. We're already on board with this. We are generous, we're kind, we're caring. And I know people who extend well beyond their comfort zone to care for others. And I want to commend you as a church. And I want to thank you that you reflect the Father's heart. But having said that, I don't want to kind of sit back and go, oh, well, we're doing a great job. Let's pat ourselves on the back and let's just continue with as business as normal. No, I want to keep challenging us to grow and to keep carrying this heart of God wherever we go, in our local neighborhood, in our streets, in, in our schools, in our workplaces, where it's not just what we do through church, but it's how we live our lives every day. And so just a couple of practical things as I finish, and if the band can jump up or Jeff can just jump up. Number one. Be aware. Be aware of needs around you. You know, so often we get lost in our own world, our own situations, our own needs, our own problems, our own situation, that we stop seeing the needs of those around us. All these three people walked down a road and came face to face with a need. Two people didn't even care to acknowledge the need. They just kept going. And so often in our workplaces, our schools, our universities, our neighborhood, maybe there are people with needs that we just don't see or hear because we're just not aware. Let's be people who are more aware, who are more listening, who are more seeing the needs around us. Second practical principle is be intentional. Be intentional. What I, what I mean by that is set yourself up to be generous. Whether it's putting aside a certain amount of money or however you budget, where you, you do have margin in your life. And if you get a pair rise that rather than absorbing that to just be more comfortable and, and have a better car, nicer house, buy more stuff, how about you carve out some of that pair rise? You know what? I'm going to use this to meet the needs of others. Be intentional. Think about it. Plan it. Prepare for it so that when a need arises, you can go, you know what? I've got money in the bank for it. It's set aside just for that. And when it's gone, it's gone, but it's there. And I can do something with it. Be intentional. Make this a core value in your life that you and your family are part of. You know, at Sunday school, we've introduced this to our kids. A little while ago, our missions committee felt that we need to teach our kids about this. And so they now, once a month, they do missions offering. And we're working towards raising enough money through our Sunday school to sponsor one of the kids from ADEX. 
we want to create a culture in our kids that they just go, okay, well, we, we set aside money. So parents, if your kids come and ask you for a gold coin, it's not because they're going to the tuck shop down the road. Right? That's what it's there for. Teach them. Teach, teach your teenagers, hey, it's not just about you. Set aside money so that you can be generous. Adults, pensioners, wherever you're at, how can you be intentional to be generous and kind? Last one, be creative. Be creative. It's not just about money. Yes, sure, money helps. Money makes the world go around. They say money meets a lot of needs. But there's so many other ways you can act in generosity, act with kindness that is not just putting money in a bowl or a plate. You can cook meals. You can visit lonely people. You can make a phone call. You can write a note. You can be kind in so many other ways. You can give your time. You can volunteer at food care or at Parramatta Mission or at you know, some of the programs that care for homeless people or whatever it is. You can give your time. You can give your energy. If you know someone is sick and can't mow their lawns, you can go and mow their lawns. I, I have been the recipient of so many people's creativity in blessing me. People have, you know, said, you know what, Pastor, I, I know that you probably don't have enough money to go on a holiday, so I've got this, you know, um, holiday package that I'm a part of, and I'm not using it this year. Why don't you go and have a weekend away? And I'm like, yes, thank you. There's so many other ways that you can be generous and kind creatively. And with that, I just want to say that George and Mary, who some of you may know, who were part of our church, um, they were, as a farewell gift, they really wanted to thank us and thank the church. And they bought us a, a djembe, which is like an African drum. And they're not cheap. And they wanted to give us a gift because they know our church is kind of very multicultural and loves kind of ethnic music. And at carols, we wanted to use one, but we didn't have one. And so they said, all right, we're going to bless you guys with one. Just wonderful. And a couple of years ago, we, we, we needed a new keyboard. And we just kind of put it out of the church and go, we need a new keyboard. Can somebody help? And somebody came and said, Here's the money you need for that. Just be creative. Be intentional. Be open to your neighbors. You know, somebody might just need a babysitter. There might be a family that you know in our church who don't have any other family or friends in Sydney and they've got little kids and they just need a night out. How about you say, you know what? How about we look after your kids? You go have a night out. Amazing the things that we can do. I want us to be a church where we're thinking beyond just putting money in a plate because. I want to say sometimes that's costly, but sometimes that's the easiest thing to do. Unless it's sacrificial. Sometimes we've got to give when it hurts. But you can give your time. And in the West, sometimes giving time is more painful than giving money. Be creative. And let us be a church that is not only meeting the needs of those inside our in circle, our neighbors that are easy to love, our brothers and sisters at PCC, or even Christians globally. But let's extend beyond that to meet any needs that we hear about or find out about or know about in Jesus' name because we're reflecting His heart. Why don't you stand with me and just take a moment to reflect on that. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Worship you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, touch our hearts. Holy Spirit, touch our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father, we are so thankful for your mercy that was extended to us in Jesus. 
Lord, we thank you that he died in our place. He sacrificed himself so that we would know you. And no amount of our good works will ever, ever bring us to you. Only the finished work of Jesus can save us. And we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to do our good works to save ourselves because we would kill ourselves trying to do enough good works to please you. But we thank you that Jesus' perfect sacrifice has removed the need for us to do that. But you still call us to obey you. You still call us to be a good neighbor. You still call us to go. You still call us to display and radiate your heart of mercy in our community. And so we pray, Father, that you would transform us from the inside out. God, will you do something in our heart? Lord, when we come to church, when we gather as a connect group in our times of prayer and devotion and being in the Word, change our hearts, Lord. Give us a glimpse of your heart for broken and needy and hurting people. Give us mercy and compassion that moves us to act. Father, whether it's with our money or our time or our skills or our resources, give us creativity, give us margin, give us opportunity, Father, to be a neighbor. Even this week, will you use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd like prayer this morning, I invite you to come for anything. If you have a need with our prayer team, our elders would love to pray with you. But if not, God bless you. Have a great week. Stick around.